Let us pray together. Gracious God, we join your people around this beautiful planet this morning. All of us gathered around your word yet again, confident that by the power of your Holy Spirit you have some new love, some new life, some new light to bring into our lives yet again. And so we pray that by the power that raised Jesus from the dead, you would raise us to know the joy of ever rising again. And we pray this through your living word, Jesus Christ. Amen. This past week, I felt the Holy Spirit drawing me very clearly to preach on a text that I have never in my 15 years of ministry ever preached on. And what I'm talking about, of course, is the passage that Connie just read for us, which is the original ending to the Gospel of Mark that we find in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts for this gospel. And you can turn to it in your insert if you'd like to follow along. Now let me tell you a little bit about what happens for us as preachers. You see, every third Easter, when this Mark text rolls around in the lectionary, I've always reached for and chosen instead the resurrection story from John 20, where the risen Jesus meets Mary Magdalene and calls her by name. I mean, my goodness, is there a more compelling story in the whole Bible than that one? And so it's easy to reach for it. And it sure preaches a whole lot better on Easter morning than this one from Mark, which has to be one of the most disorienting stories in the whole Bible. I mean, my goodness, it ends with these words. So they fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anybody, for they were afraid. End of verse, end of chapter, end of gospel. You see why I always went to John 20? I mean, what kind of non-ending is this? Did Roman soldiers maybe come and arrest Mark just as he was putting the last sentences on this gospel? Or... Did maybe the last part of the scroll get lost? Or did it get eaten by his dog? (laughs) Like our proverbial homework? They did have dogs back then, I checked. They could have happened. If you look at the insert in your Bible, you will see 
that scribes felt exactly the same way that we do. And 200 years after the book of Mark was written, they came along in the 3rd and 4th centuries and they added two different endings. And you find them in your insert. A very short one that we find in 8b and a much longer one that we find in verses 9 to 20. Now let me be clear. My point this morning is not to question the content of these later add-on verses, which all, by the way, come from the other three Gospels. Although you might not want to follow verse 18 and the instruction to go pick up poisonous snakes or to drink poison. But dear friends, my point here this morning is to ask, what if Mark is actually trying to communicate something very crucial in his abrupt ending? A very clear promise to us and a very clear call to discipleship that we usually miss when we skip over to the other later endings to this gospel. And what if his incredibly honest look at the terror and the uncertainty and the doubt that we sometimes feel as the followers of Jesus is exactly the message that we all need to hear at East Chestnut here this morning? So let's focus on the original ending of Mark. And I invite you to follow along in your insert. Verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. After our Lord's brutal execution... He is buried before sundown on Friday and the start of the Sabbath. And then on Saturday after sundown and after the end of the Sabbath, these three women, Jesus' faithful benefactors and supporters, now go out to some market to buy aromatic oils to anoint the broken body of their beloved teacher. Now we know from the previous chapter that these three women are at the very cross of Jesus when he dies. You know, the Roman Empire routinely uses this very public and brutal way of execution, which involves whipping and torture and stabbing followed by a long, suffocating death. The empire uses this on purpose. Imagine us having an electric chair out in Penn Square. That's what this is like. To inspire maximum fear and submission in those who witness it. And it works. And when we add to this the realization that Jesus' death also means for these women the death of his movement 
of compassion and love and reconciliation, then we can be very sure that these are three highly traumatized and devastated women. They're in the midst of PTSD. Verse 2. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. We all like the double echo there, when the sun had risen, but it doesn't sound that way in the Greek. On Sunday, these three women rise early to go to the tomb. Notice how Mark very intentionally mentions this happening on the very first day of the week. What happened on the very first day of the week in creation? This is the day when God said, let there be light. And later on, theologians will pick up this detail and proclaim that on Easter morning, these three women are standing in the middle of a second big bang. A tumultuous surge of divine energy. As fiery and intense as the beginning of the universe. On Easter morning, God's new creation begins. But these are all things that they will perhaps only grasp later on. Verse 3. The three women have been saying to one another, Who will roll away that stone from the entrance to the tomb? Here we see that these three are only focused still on death. And rolling away a stone that's too big for three women to push aside together. Verse 4. When they looked up and they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. Notice that this development doesn't trigger shouts of, Jesus has been raised, or I told you so. I knew it was going to happen. But more likely, fearful questions about who has stolen the dead body. Verse 5, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man. Remember that detail. A young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Now in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the occupant of this tomb is identified as an angel. And so all of us quickly assume that the same person and the same angel is here. But in Greek, the words for angel and young man are not the same nor are they in English. (laughs) And intriguingly, in Mark, there's one other mention of a young man. He appears in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night 
of Jesus' arrest. Are you with me? He is the one who, when he flees from Jesus' captors, has his robe torn off and runs away naked into the night. Many commentators believe that this young man is none other than Mark himself, the writer of the gospel, and that in his nakedness, he represents all the disciples who have deserted and abandoned Jesus in his hour of need, and he represents all of us who still desert and doubt and deny him. Now, this is where things get really interesting. Because if this is really the same man who runs away naked and who's sitting in the tomb, then the message is clearly that those who have run away in terror and uncertainty and doubt are now welcomed to become the messengers of the good news of the resurrection. Now, if you're saying, wait a minute, preacher, I don't, I don't know about that. Look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. There, the risen Jesus is actually right in the physical presence of the disciples. And it says, even there, that still some of them doubted. And I'm so grateful to Matthew for including that crucial detail. You see, what this means, dear friends, is that if Jesus still loves and He still sends doubters, these doubters, then there's great hope. And there's great work to be done for all of us doubters and all of us wavering people like me and maybe like you. We don't have to be certain about everything. All we have to do is take that next faithful step. We don't have to be certain about everything. All we have to do is take that next faithful step. Verse 6, But the young man said to them, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been raised. He's not here. Look, there's the place that they laid him. Commentators here say that the translation in front of you from the NRSV, he has been raised is much more faithful to the Greek than the NIV's he has risen. If you say he has risen, it kind of sounds like Jesus did this to himself. But the clear meaning in the Greek is that God has raised Jesus. He has been raised. And in raising Jesus from the dead, this means that God has vindicated his his nonviolent life. 
vindicated all of his teachings, vindicated his sacrificial love on the cross. The powers and the principalities and the empires of evil and death and sin are defeated. Their history. And God's love is revealed to be the supreme power of the universe. And because of the resurrection, we know that nothing will ever be able to separate us. Nothing will be, able to se- be ever able to separate us from the love of God. Verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter. That he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now finally we arrive at the clear promise that I mentioned at the start. Everyone who sets out in discipleship to Galilee will see Jesus. Everyone. These women, the other disciples, and even Peter. Now, why is Peter single out in this way? Probably because he's among those most in need of forgiveness and healing. After all, he has denied Jesus three times. And why this get thee to Galilee message? Why Galilee? Galilee is not so much about geography as it is about mission. It represents Palestine's open door to the nations of the world. These women are now called, just as we are, to join Jesus' mission of inviting all people to live under the reign of God. And Galilee also represents the reality that Christ is now alive and always going before us. Leading us to minister to new and surprising and unexpected people. And he has chosen to make the hungry the despised and the imprisoned, the special portals of his presence. Sometimes as a pastor I hear people say, where is God in this world? Well, Christ gave us some very clear answers to that. We will find him amongst the hungry, the despised, and the imprisoned. When we travel to Galilee, to our community meal tomorrow night, that's Galilee. 
to places of violence and misery and poverty. That's Galilee. And Jesus promises to meet us there. Radical discipleship always leads us to Jesus. And dear friends, this morning, where might Galilee be in your life right now? And for the life of our congregation, where is Galilee? Verse 8. So they flee from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Ten years ago, my family made a photo album storybook about how our daughter Jasmine came into our lives and how we came into her life. It has photos of us getting ready for Jasmine, of her and her Chinese hometown, and of our first precious days together. And then on the last page in this book, it doesn't say the end. It says the beginning. The beginning. And I really believe that's what Mark is trying to say with his abrupt way of ending his gospel. He wants us to see that this is just the beginning rather than the end. He wants all of us to be asking, will these women really keep on being silent? And will they finally go up to Galilee where Jesus has promised to meet them? And Mark also wants each of us to ask these same questions of ourselves as well. Will we be silent? Will we go to Galilee to meet Jesus? And so instead of tying up his gospel with a tiny, beautiful bow, he now steps back, hands you and me the pen, and he says, here, all of you, write your resurrection ending with your own lives. Amen.